Hello everyone, my name is Gabby Calderon, and I am a student this summer in Modern Languages 2500. And today I'm going to be talking talking to you about Bahasa Indonesia and how it came to be. Now, I'm a student of linguistics, and any other student uh, might remember how there's sort of a blurry line between a language as compared to a dialect. In general, there's a rule of thumb uh, that we've even discussed in this class, that there must be mutual intelligibility and political or social affiliation um, for two communication systems to be classified as dialects as opposed to distinct languages. In some cases, the declaration of of being a language versus a dialect can have a lot uh, big consequences for that culture's future um, because where designated languages, uh, institutionalized languages might receive um, more support or being taught, be taught in schools, dialects are often left to be taught in home and uh, as part of the community. And in some cases, a designation as a dialect can be made from a politically motivated standpoint to promote a sense of homogeneity, such as with the case of dialects in China, which are actually mutually unintelligible. This can harm linguistic diversity and lead to an endangerment or loss of culture and la- due to lack of preservation resources. However, today I'd like to discuss an, a case of the opposite, uh, institutionalization of a dialect leading to its preservation even within an extremely uh, linguistically diverse environment. Um, that is to say that the process of institutionalization has um, somewhat preserved this dialect amongst um, hundreds that are otherwise being spoken throughout the country of Indonesia. Um, interestingly, and in contrast to the previously mentioned Sinitic languages, this case actually represents a case of a dialect being promoted to language status. It's also a reflection of language as a means of preserving culture, geography influencing language, and political choices being influenced by grammar, which is not a connection we think to make most of the time. So let's discuss this unique case. And this is where I, I would play music if I had any. But just to jump right in, to give some geographic uh, background, Indonesia is composed of over 3,000 islands, spanning about uh, 3,200 miles, which is larger than the width of the United States. Um, Naturally, the size alone will introduce some um, barriers to linguistic homogeneity, but to make things even more difficult, the oceans in between these islands are rather inhospitable, and a lot of the islands are mountainous with dense swamps and forests, which are difficult or sometimes impossible to navigate. All of this has made for lots of linguistic isolation, uh, including over 700 indigenous languages, the majority of which are are mutually unintelligible or cannot be understood by speakers of another indigenous language. Um, And this kind of becomes important because when Indonesia uh, declares independence from the Netherlands, after being under their influence since the early 1600s, there was a clear need for a lingua franca from one of the spoken languages, um, some way for all of these different ethnic and linguistic groups to communicate. And interestingly enough, um, the Malay language soon emerged as a frontrunner due to its history as a kind of lingua franca throughout the archipelago, um, but for a number of other reasons. So why was this such an easy choice? Why was this the obvious um, frontrunner as the national language? Malaysian uh, people as an ethnicity just made up 1.6% of the ethnic population, which is vanishingly small compared to some of the other groups that exist throughout the country of Indonesia at this time. However, to quote one diplomat in um, 1957, choosing was rather a question of using the language which could most be which could be most easily learned and understood, a language used moreover by the persons engaged in trade and other traffic, and that was the Malay language. 
other advantages were that it could be simplified for foreigners, which was important for becoming a center of trade and tourism. The Malaysians were close political allies and frequent trade partners, and it made economic sense to be able to communicate with them easily. Uh, they were already somewhat established uh, friends of the Indonesians, even before their movement for uh, independence. For, uh, to make this an even more clear decision, some of the larger languages that were spoken even in bigger cities had some obvious disadvantages. Take, for example, Javanese. It seems like a natural choice because it was already spoken by about 40 million people in Indonesia, uh, as well as making up a majority ethnic, uh, not a majority, but a large minority ethnic group. However, Javanese has an extremely complicated grammatical structure, alongside an intricate honorific system which separates the language into a high and low standard version. Uh, and that is to say you would speak sort of the high version to somebody you respect or who is a part of the um, superior honorific class and the low version to somebody who's part of the inferior class. So it sort of immediately um, discriminates in how it's spoken. So this really just makes for a, a cultural implication of superiority, which would make it very difficult to popularize. Malaysian also has a rich cultural history, um, which really helps to popularize the language in general. And we'll, we'll see that again come up. Uh, as the language is taking root throughout Indonesia. Um, it is worth noting that the Malay spoken in Indonesia is actually a dialect of standard Malay, so it has a slightly different phonology. Um, and there is a slight advantage in choosing this um, somewhat foreign language as opposed to one of the ones that's spoken by an ethnic group in, in, in Indonesia, in the sense that all ethnic groups would have to learn it and adopt it just the same, which doesn't show favor to a particular group, who's sort of equal footing throughout um, in implementation. So you might be wondering, if it's so difficult to standardize in Indonesia, why was now the time to try? You know, there were there were 300 languages before, things to be, seemed to be working. Um, and that really brings us back to our historical scene. The independence movement uh, in the late 1920s somewhat relied upon the idea of establishing an Indonesian language as a unifier for the country under Dutch rule. So at the point when this movement was ramping up in around 1928, uh, Dutch was still used for all official communications and was necessary for an academic career. However, uh, leaders of the independence movement realized that there was a need for people to have a common basis to communicate upon and to organize their own, on their own terms rather than allowing a foreign language to dominate. It follows from the idea that language is an expression of culture and that theirs was being marginalized even on their own soil. So independence groups started efforts to promote what they now call Bahasa Indonesia. And alongside their political movement, there was also, uh, as I mentioned before, this growing cultural movement of not only reprinting uh, historical literature, but also producing new literature and translating foreign works. Uh, and while that progress sort of continued in the background and Dutch remained the official language, uh, Japanese occupation began in 1942 during World War II. However, Japanese never really took um, in the country despite immediate schooling changes. And communication was crucial to wartime efforts, both to spread propaganda and military intelligence. With Dutch banned and Japanese impractical due to the difficulty of learning it, Indonesia, Indonesian became the new default language. Um, it was updated to handle war terminology and thus became a sweeping cultural force as millions began to pick it up across Indonesia as, as the lingua franca of the time. And thus, the Japanese occupation became the sort of catalyst which allowed this years of work by the Indo Indonesian independence movement to be implemented as the national Indonesian language. And you can sort of see the uh, success of this language as um, 
the huge increase of uh, literacy rate throughout Indonesia at the time. So by 1980, 80% of men and 64% of women were literate, which jumped to 90% and 79% respectively in 1990. Um, the proportion of people able to use the national language also skyrocketed from 41% in 1970 to 61% in 1980 to over 80% in 1990. And while those numbers might seem somewhat unexpectedly low, Given the very short time period this was taking place in, those, these numbers are extremely impressive. And it sort of re reflects that original decision in 1928 to choose a language that many found easy to learn, rather than one that was culturally dominant at the time. Today, Indonesia operates on loosely a three-language system for its people. The first one is Bahasa Indonesia, which is the national language used for official purposes and as a common tongue for disparate ethnic groups, as well as being taught in schools. One of... Uh, and then... The second language would be one of hundreds of indigenous languages, which are often spoken in the home or community, and that's kind of your daily use language, which enjoy very varying degrees of institutionalization. For example, there are sometimes cultural events or shows that will be put on in an area's vernacular language rather than the standard Indonesian. Schools often take up also a third additional uh, foreign language study, and usually that's English, uh, although overall rates of fluency remain pretty low. Naturally, an overwhelming majority of the population can speak two or more languages, and we're around upwards of 75% um, can are bilingual at the very least, and it is estimated that only 10% of Indonesian people learn the national language as their mother tongue. And this represents a major success for implementing a natural language in a culturally sensitive way. In this case, it was implemented not to stifle linguistic diversity um, because it was never made to usurp indigenous languages. Instead, Bahasa Indonesia is used as a connection point for otherwise disjointed groups to work together in a way they really fundamentally could not before. And it addressed a need to, created by geographic isolation throughout um, Indonesia. In this way, the population was able to integrate a new language alongside their existing systems rather than having to um, overwrite their current ones with a new domination system from a colonizer. This is also a great story about the interactions between politics and language. Malay was sort of at the right place at the right time to be co-opted by the independence movement. And the language took root as a, re as a re result of occupation and the need for wartime communications. At multiple points, the grammatical structures of language had key political consequences. Uh, key examples being that Japanese was generally too complicated to take an immediate hold, especially amongst adults, which led to Indonesian filling the void of communications uh, that was necessary during wartime. Uh, as a second example, Malay was chosen over Javanese due to its favorable linguistic properties. Uh, that includes the compl uh, less complicated grammatical structure um, and the lack of an honorific system. The Indonesian culture of multilingualism and the sense of national pride is intact even against an, influ an influx of English influence. And this is partly thanks to their language policy. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed learning about this interesting case study as much as I did. I think it has a very optimistic view of what a national institutionalized language could be and how it could work with indigenous languages rather than overriding their history. I hope you learned something and have a great, have a great day.